1: You're listening to the Cattle Station Classroom podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle and people to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land and business. So, let's get into it.
2: G'day, my name is Hamish McTaggart. Uh, I live on Bidgee Station with my wife Jodie and my three kids, Barney, Hazel and George. Um, Bidgee Station is in uh, the Gascoyne or the Shire of Upper Gascoyne uh, region of Western Australia. It's a, a couple of hundred k's east of a town called Carnarvon and, and 10 k's east of our little local town called Gascoigne Junction. Uh, it's a uh, one and a half million acre, or just just short of that, 1.4-something million acre cattle station, which uh, has a, um, the two rivers running through it called the, Gas, uh, the Gascoigne River and the Lions River. And, yeah, we've um, run uh, uh, 6,000 uh, breeder cows on Vigimor. Uh, we're sort of in the middle of Western Australia. If that makes sense. We don't um, people, uh, myself and my neighbours go both ways with our cattle, north and south, into the live export market and the and the and the uh, you know uh, hook trade as well.
1: All right. So let's get into our first uh, subject area, which is country. So can you describe the country type, and I suppose also the climate, and what seasons you experience in this part of the world?
2: We're in eight-inch rainfall country, so it's pretty sort of marginal sort of country. Um, we don't, you know, we can get rain in the summer and the winter, um, and you know, it's not reliable reliably one way or another. We c- it can rain any time, sort of around Christmas time through to about halfway through July as our rain season, and um, you know, bits and pieces all the way with no definitive sort of wet, you know, wet or dry season really. We've got. Yeah, two fairly major river systems that run through the middle of the place—the—the um, the, lines and the Gascoigne. They're—they're pretty big river systems. I think they're you know sort of kilometer-wise or you know square mile-wise are the, actually the biggest rivers in in Western Australia. The, the Gascoigne starts you know east of Meekatharra and um, and the lines you know it gets into the bottom end of the Pilbara. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of the watershed starts in the Murchison as well. So, it's, it's, um, it, the, the, the station is dominated by those two, uh, river systems, um, with some sort of fairly high mountainous country in amongst it as well. Um, and, uh, it's hard to describe. It's a big place. Um, it is a big station with, you know, a lot of different land systems on it, but, um, the uh, it's it, it is um, fairly marginal sort of country in that we run about eleven or twelve thousand head of cattle on one point five million acres, so it's a lot of lot of country for, for for not that many cattle really.
1: So you said just before that your rainfall can can pretty much come any time of year, uh, and over particularly over like a six month period. Do you, does that mean that it's difficult to use, uh, what people call like green dates or decision dates? Can, can yeah, that be really used in this part of the world then?
2: It's pretty tough. Um, it's pretty tough. The, the, um, yeah, the unpredictable nature of, of the rainfall sort of means it's, it's, you, you know, that it's basically not going to rain between Christmas and sort of about halfway through July. You know, the average rainfall for those months is is pretty well zero. So, by oh, about halfway through July or even a bit earlier, you, you know, you know, you, you, you know when it's definitely not going to rain and, but you don't know when it is going to. So it's, uh, it, it lends itself to running this country pretty conservatively. You know, you, you, you um, you've got to leave a fair bit in the bank, um, to make sure your cattle are going to get through. We've had a magnificent year this year. So, the stress is off, and we don't have to, you know, make too many decisions, um, what to, you know, management wise about what we're going to be doing with our cattle this year. But, um, uh, but, but generally speaking, it, 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 you, you just have to run this country very, very, very lightly. And, um, and, uh, you know, sort of, in a lot of the years, you, out of say 10 years, you, you might, um, you know, sort of four or five of those years might be as low as sort of 100, to 150 millimetres of rain and that's kind of where you set your, your cattle numbers up for to to handle those sorts of years and get through comfortably in those sorts of years and anything after that's a bonus really.
1: In this part of the world, um, so we're I suppose middle of, not middle of Australia but when we're looking top to bottom, um, what is the significance and the impact of winter versus summer rainfall Uh, Because of the temperature differences, you guys actually have a winter down here, say, compared to Darwin or Kununurra or somewhere further north.
2: Yeah, your your winter rainfall is really valuable. Um, it tends to fall in a, you know, softer, gentler sort of way and you can sort of catch most of that water that, that, and then, and then it must be something to do with like soil temperature and the actual temperature in the, in the air. You know, it just lends itself to growing, you know, growing more more vegetation on the same amount of rain. So, yeah, if you can get that winter rain, it's really, really valuable. Um, sort of counts for almost twice as much. Um, with less runoff and, um, it, it it'll grow, fo- it'll grow food for our cattle, uh, at a time of year just before we go to sell them. So, it, you know, it can be good to finish them off. If you end up with a couple of hundred mils of rain in January and then, you know, most of it just goes down the river, um, you know, and it'll be great for three or four months, but you know, if it doesn't rain in the winter, um you you know, your cattle will be in definitely in saleable condition and probably in pretty good condition, but it they just won't be, you know, finished. So ideally the best way is to, you know, get it to sort of rain, you know, reasonably consistently right the way through the year, but it doesn't really ever work like that, but that's that's always that's always good.
1: So are different plants growing in response to the rainfall on summer versus winter? Yeah,
2: yeah. There's a the, the dominant sort of grass through this part of the world is a, uh, is in, the, especially in the river systems and, and, you know, encroaching further and further onto the station is the WA Buffle, uh, or Nor, uh, Norwest Buffle, WA Buffle, um, uh, which is, uh, which is naturalised to this area. It's, it's sort of the West Australian sort of Gascoigne sort of Buffle. Um, it's a bit different to the Buffles from around the country, around Australia. Uh, and it kind of grows all year round, so it's, it's, um you know fairly uh it's fairly consistent it it doesn't have to be you know warm or cold for it to grow it'll, it'll just it'll just fire as soon as there's any any rain around but yeah your winter vegetations um are 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 you more um you know your annuals and your um and your natives will, and those sort of really lush, beautiful herbages, um, they're pretty well just specifically growing in the winter. It's like, I think it's like a soil temperature thing apparently that allows them to grow But magnificent cattle tucker or, or you know, mm-hmm. for any small or large stock really and it, it, you know, sort of lends itself to being a really good fattening country this part of the world when it rains. Those winter herbages are just what sort of sets you apart and just the... Wonderful variety of, you know, of diet that cattle have in the Gascoigne as a, on Bijima, but, you know, in the Gascoigne and, and, and a lot of the bottom end of the Pilbara, you know, there's not, uh, five or six or ten things for, for cattle to, or sheep to eat in this neck of the woods. It's, you know, there, there's hundreds of things for them to eat when the, when the country's up and going. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful fattening country. It's, a... Uh, um, You'll you know put weights on cattle here that you know that you can't put on in just about the rest of the state and, and you know probably right the way through Australia. But it's the trade off for that is is that it's you know pretty unpredictable rainfall wise as uh, it can get very very dry here at times.
1: What are aside from buffalo grass? What are the other main feed sources? Like what are some of the species?
2: Um, well, you've got buffalo is an introduced grass and it, it, it sort of does most of the heavy lifting. Um, and it's something that the, our cattle really aim for and it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful plant for this part of the world. Um, oh, and then there's just too many to, to, to sort of mention, really. Um, there are your, uh, your, your native grasses as well, your ribbon grasses, um, not so much in this part of the world, your roads grasses and, and, and sort of wind grasses as well um but uh, your top feeds are, are very important as well or your you know your, your shrubs and bushes uh of which there's you know you know sort of tens if not hundreds um but most of the ones that you'd see if you drive around for you know 10k's around here that the cattle will will jump into um mulgars, uh, mulgas um any type of uh, sort of you know there's sort of eight or ten different types of salt bushes and blue bushes, um, that they'll jump into and, and, uh, and pick away at, at, you know, which, which is less desirable. But, um, y- you know, some of the acacias, um, and, uh, you know, needle trees, things like that, you know, there's, they, 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 they could take their pick of 40 or 50 different, you know, sort of shrubs and bushes to eat around here as well. Yeah.
1: Is top feed important in this part of the country?
2: Yeah, mostly just, it's, it's definitely a backup. Um, so it's a reserve. Uh, you'll see, you know, cattle when the, when the, when your grasses do start to chuck it in, they start to darken off and, you know, they lose protein, um, and, you know, palatability. You'll see them start to feed with their heads up a lot more and, and normally anyway because you know, just they love that variety of their diet and they'll pick away at, you know, little things. But, um, and, you know, once again, that, just that beautiful diet, you know, Allows itself for, you know, increased fertility and weight gain and, you know, all those sorts of things. Healthy, healthy, happy cattle. But, um, when it start if you, if you do run into a dry season, you'll, you'll start to see them, you know, use the top feed a lot more in just, you know, it's, it's not great because, uh, you know, that most of their diet come, should come from grasses, but you'll start to see them use that, use that reserve a lot more. Very important in this part of the world, you know, extremely important. Um, we all probably know of stations and, and places that are, are grasslands and they're just unbelievable and they're going really well. And But as, you know, when you run out of feed, you really do run out of feed. Um, whereas, yeah, if you've got, if you've got edible, palatable shrubs and plants, it just, you know, it, it adds a huge amount. Yeah. It's a very important part of this station. It's sort of protected and, you know, really, um, um yeah, yeah it's it's something that we um you know you've got to make sure that you're you're looking after you trying to grow grass is a, is really important that's the that's the sort of aim of of um as a in this part of the world is is making sure that you you've got soils that can you know that really promote grasses growing but yeah not not forgetting that that the top feed's is really important as well
1: can you describe your grazing and spelling strategies if you use any on pijima
2: oh uh, not not really um the it, it's a big place it it's 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 a big station it's large land area so it's it's pretty hard to um you know effectively manage pieces of country and you know it's, you'd have to it, it is dominated by rivers it's really hard to fence you know the Gascoigne um you know it's right out it's right behind you there it's pretty close to a kilometer wide um you know, in, in places it's really hard to fence. Um, uh, you know, I was saying before, there's, you know, it's, it can be pretty mountainous and rugged country in place as well. So it's difficult place to fence. with the, the the boundary's completely fenced, which is a pretty, you know, fair achievement in itself. It's a pretty big station. But to actually fence Bidjima is, aside from a couple of sail paddocks, um, it, it's pretty hard to keep cattle sort of jammed away in any particular spot. So... We try not to, you know, we try not to fence it too much. Um, the r- really, it, the only way that we, um, you know, try and farm the place sustain- sustainably as we can is, is, is run pretty light numbers. Like, you know, I was saying before, just work on the theory of, of, um, that you're going to get 150 mils of rain for the year and have a, have an amount of cattle there that, 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 uh, that can, Exist comfortably and do well in that, with that amount of rain, which is not much. And, you know, it's pretty, you know, pretty lightly stocked. And, and just work off that. And any good seasons you have is a bonus. And, you know, the country can sort of get away from you and, and, uh, you know, build up a haystack for later on is, is the, is the, is is the theory here without really trying to manage it too much. Um, control, really controlling your numbers is, Best you possibly can. So, mate, just getting that number right and and really sticking to it in in good times and in bad. Try not to, you know, try not to fluctuate your numbers too much. Um, Probably spaying our older cattle has probably been really important for that. It's just something that we've learnt to. um, As soon as a cow turns ten, every couple of years we go through these old cows and really keep bashing away at the chipping away at those old cows and making sure you keep the numbers down. It's a bit easier said than done, but. Yeah, that's been really important. Um, you, you don't, you can't let those. Uh, yeah, trying to, you know, those old cows can just build up in your herd, and and it's hard to keep control of your numbers. Um, and spaying <laughs> helps that. You can, you can, yeah, just you you can really hold that number of cattle in a certain area or a water point or whatever at a, at a really specific number, and that's you know pretty important. Um, and aside from that, you know, really, that's, that's about the best way that we can, you know, spell country. We, um, if it gets really dry in a certain spot of the station, um, we, we got caught a little bit last year on, on one corner of the, uh, yeah, last year, um, on one corner of the place specifically. And we did shift, uh, uh, uh you know, as much as four or five hundred breeders away from a, just a, one real certain corner of the, not that far where it had rained again, but the cattle are just starting to, you know, look look pretty rough. Um, but aside from that, probably in, you know, in my sort of short time here at Bidjumar in ten years, it's that's that's as far as we've had to you know sort of shift cattle to get them away from a from a pretty crook area. And as it turned out, it rained really well, you know, pretty quickly after that, and we sort of had to take them back again. But that's probably a sign that we're you know sort of on the right right track, I reckon, and got the right amount of cattle, and you know, can make money out of it, and the country seems to be you know getting you know getting away from underneath the cattle so yeah we feel like we've got it each station in australia is different and everybody's got their own different way of doing it. it's just just how we do it at bijamai if we could split the place up and fence it off and be reasonably um, sure that your, your cattle would stay where you wanted them to go you would but yeah it's just just too difficult here at Bidjemore, I reckon.
1: When you did have to shift those breeders off, what was the plan, let's say, if it hadn't rain, to stop them from just kind of going back to where they came from? And do you turn waters off as well at the same time to try and keep them where you've gone? Oh,
2: no, no, you, that, we didn't actually shift them all that far. It was just, it was just a fun, it, you know, you didn't have to go, like, when I say not all that far, you know, probably uh, 20 or 30 Ks downstream, I think, um, as a bit of a rule. And, and, uh, and we, um, which was unusual. It was just it, it sort of it rained well and stuff not that far away, and ma- the majority of the cattle had already shifted themselves. But it was just as, as much as sort of oh, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. It was probably two or three hundred breeders plus followers, maybe. Um, so it wa- it wasn't too. It, you once you've shifted those cattle and you've put them on good feed, then they don't they don't really you know want to go back much. Um, uh, and no, you, you you don't turn waters off in case you do have cattle end up back there again. You don't want to get cattle thirsty, and um, yeah, it's just a uh, you you. There's no fences to put them behind, but no, there's very few of those cattle went back, um, and uh, they started doing well straight away. And then yeah, this you know in the year 2021, it was. Probably the best year that Bijimai's ever had, season-wise, I'd, I'd say probably since the 1880s, I'd, I'd, I'd guess, um, just to look at the rainfall records and stuff. So we just had the most magnificent season, started pretty well straight away, um, or early in the year, and um, yeah, those cattle were were in business when we went when we went to go and muster there later on this year. Very few of those cattle have actually gone back, so we're going to have to fill that part of the world up with cattle again, and you know, slowly shift, shift cattle back back there, I reckon.
1: What kind of pests do you have on Maya whether they be animals or plants?
2: Um, we're pretty lucky. Um, we're pretty lucky um, in that way. We we it, It's managed pretty well. Um, you know, the local shires and our local, um, you know, biosecurity groups and stuff are, are pretty strong. And uh, between us, it's... Um, the, Plants-wise, there's not a lot. There's there's one plant called mesquite. You, you know, you might have seen had a bit to do with that. Um, but luckily, um, and, and mesquite would really settle into this country if allowed. Um, but, um, pr- you know, probably for about the last 10 years, the last sort of 12 months or 18 months, we've just sort of, you know, it's slackened off a bit and it hasn't sort of boomed away again. But there's been a really concerted effort to get rid of mesquite on the place. You, you spray it. Um, and it's like a pretty intensive, you know, people on the boots on the ground sort of spraying, you know, you've got to go and find it and spray it and chop it down. And it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty hard jacker. But, um, our local biosecurity group for the Gascoigne area does a really good job with that, which we're very thankful for. And really, you know, you've, you've got to support that, those people, um, pushing in lines with bulldozers so they've got access to it and, and you supply the diesel and just, you know, be helpful. Uh, so that's, Really, plant was that's kind of about it, um, which we're pretty lucky for. Um, and then the feral animals, uh, donkeys uh, are a pretty big one. Um, There's been a pretty concerted effort to to, to shoot um, any donkeys, camels, uh, and horses that we found uh, in the last sort of five or ten years. It probably, I reckon, in the last uh, sort of you know as much as five or six years ago, just sort of made the decision to to just. Shoot as uh, on site when we mustered. So um, we mustered with an airplane, a helicopter. as Soon as anybody sees a a donkey or a camel or whatever it might be, we we just take the time to just get, get, you know, and we yeah, re, you know, pretty thorough about it. And um, it probably started out in the hundreds when we started. I think the first year we did that, we we shot you know memory serves me correct i think we probably shot about 300 donkeys and horses and 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 a sort of probably 20 or 30 or maybe yeah 30 or 40 camels maybe and the master we've just finished in you know in the uh in the spring um probably look i th- i think it got to it's probably under 10 it's probably the numbers are under 10 now i'd say that we that we shot um so that's that's really good you know that's great um they you know if you let those numbers uh, build up at, you know it, it's a um, you know total grossing pressure it makes a big difference in, especially in marginal years um, dingoes are another one that we really you know push that pretty hard um, we've got seem to have this block pretty lock awesome little pocket that we're in at the moment where we've we, we've got um, we've got enough dingoes that they keep the kangaroo numbers down um, uh, but they're not getting into the calves much probably it's just on the rise a bit in the last year or two just noticing that's just a bit you know there's probably a really great period of about you know as much as seven or eight years we just didn't find any tracks on any of the calves but yeah just in the last year or two it's just the starting signs that the dingoes are probably just starting to you know just starting to touch the cattle a bit um, might have to just lift the rating there. Uh, a bit and, you know, sort of lift the, lift the effort levels there to try and, you know, get on top of the dingoes a bit better than what we are. Not that we see a lot. Um, I think, you know, once again in the must have just gone, we shot eight or ten or something. Um, the year before it was probably between the 20 and 30 sort of territory and, and, you know, so it's been somewhere in that level for a fair while as well. So, um, and probably the only other one which is, a bit rough on them because they're not really doing anything wrong, but it's just the kangaroos. Um, if you, uh, back in the sheep days here, if you, um, you know, when, so back once upon a time, Bijamal was a sheep station. Uh, there was, you know, dingoes just you know wreaked havoc with on a sheep station, so there was just this massive push to, you know, get rid of all the dingoes, which is, you know, understandable, but the by-product of that is, is that the, the, the you know, it would be impossible. I couldn't tell you how many kangaroos when I was a kid on this station. But it's just if someone told you there's a million kangaroos on Bichemai, you couldn't have argued with them. It's just it's certainly in the hundreds of thousands, I reckon. And um, you know what they what what having those sort of numbers of kangaroos on the joint just it makes it very very hard to be viable. Um, you know, I'm sure there's. You know, big chunks of farmers on Australia know exactly what I'm talking about there. Just you get overrun by kangaroos and bigoters and things. And um, as soon as you do get sort of any half season, if your country's in pretty ordinary condition, like you've had a prolonged dry spell, it does rain. Um, you know, sometimes your soils and your plants aren't in that good a nick to, to respond to that rain. But it's whatever does respond, if you've got, you know, 50,000 kangaroos, you know, uh, you know, in the in that area, they'll just they'll get it, they'll just knock it off at ground level, and it's it's just really hard to make a living when you have got big big mobs of kangaroos. So that's one of the. You, you, it's sort of come by accident, really, but on this place there's been no sort of real strategy for it. But we we as hard as we go, as hard as we possibly can on the dingoes. Um. As, 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 you know, we, there's a, there's a, a baiting drive each year. There's, there's full-time doggers that are not sort of full-time doggers, but there's full-time doggers on the, in the Shire that probably spend a couple of months a year on Bidjimaya as a bit of a rule. Um, and we, we have a bounty on the station. So it's, we, we pay anybody that shoots a, a, a shoots or traps a, a dingo on the station We you know, the station will pay a bounty. Mm-hmm. And we just go as hard as we possibly can within reason, you know, in amongst whatever else you're doing. Uh, and then we're just more by good luck than good management. It, it just seems to, you know, the ecosystem seems to be, um, there's just enough do- to dogs to, you know, keep the kang, they, they pick on the kangaroos first. We don't have a big kangaroo problem. Um, you know, it's, it's really that part of it's, re- I mean, to the point, the numbers have bred up a bit this year, but it, it, to the point where, you know, it's almost quite rare to see a kangaroo. You would go on a windmill run and see maybe two or three kangaroos on the whole run, um, or less sometimes. Um, so that, so that's uh, uh, is a way of uh, you know, it's it, there's no real sort of theory to that. It's just what we do, and it just seems to work for us here at Bijimai. So that's so that's pretty pleasing. Without, of course, you don't want your your cattle being attacked by dogs as well. So that sort of works. Yeah, works pretty well for us.
1: In addition to the feral um, animal and plant management, are there any other interventions you've employed here for regeneration of the landscape?
2: Um, yeah, my wife and I are, are very interested in farming sustainably. Um, my wife is a sort of a half-trained up rangeland sort of scientist, I suppose. She's, you know... A, a, um, you know, a, a botanist of sorts. Um, she's, she, she worked for a while in that field and she, she, she sort of taught me a lot. Um, and, you know, I'll probably taking a bit of a step back, I suppose, if you want to, you know, the sort of history of Bijamai. was established in the 1880s, um, and immediately became a sheep station, like, you know, pretty well all of northwest of Western Australia did, uh, and ran big mobs of sheep. Um, was knocked around pretty badly by having, you know, it's not, it's not country that's really suited to sheep. Um, but that's what, the, that's how those blokes, um, made their money for a start. My grandfather came here in 1947 after fighting in the Second World War. Um, uh, they grew up in a depression, him and his brothers. Uh, they bought Bijumire in a, you know, really degraded, poor state. It had been in drought for a long time. A bloke had gone broke. Um, you know, they were, they, were, they were fellas that were looking to do well um, and, uh, and, you know, they'd had a hard life up until that point. Like I said, they'd fought in wars and lived in depressions and, you know, they, they weren't really much interested in, in doing anything other than making a, a big life for themselves and doing well. They did do very well. They, they uh, you know, there was a wool boom, a wool price boom. Um, it did rain. Uh, They built this business up. They ran big mobs of sheep. Um, They weren't to know, but, you know, they ran too many sheep. Um, And uh, the country got knocked around as a result of that, and it's a pretty fragile country, so you've got to manage it and look (laughs) after it. And then um, uh, the wool price crashed in the 80s when my father, you know, so my father sort of turned up uh, roughly when I was born in the late 70s, early 80s, and, uh, sheep prices, you know, crashed, um, and uh, the place has turned into a cattle station in the very, uh, late 90s. And, and then here we are today. So it has only been a cattle station for, for a pretty short amount of time. And so it's a pretty evolving sort of a story, you know, you know, there's no, once they, it, it's the transition to cattle and getting the shape off this place. And the transition to cattle has really helped this station find its feet again and heal some of the, you know, places where it wasn't going well. It it sort of got to the stage where it's been recovering. We're lucky that we live in a piece of country that does a pretty good job of recovering itself without too much, really, intervention, um, especially mechanical intervention. Um, But just by having... um, Cattle on the place, probably getting the cattle numbers to a point where you know it's pretty comfortable, and comfortably, you know, you keep your cattle in good order and and, and being having a conservative sort of approach to it. Having, but you know, and, and aided by buffalo grass, which is really the only tool that we use to um, at at this stage um, is the only tool that we use is just to to, to use buffalo grass. Um, as a as a way of you know putting a band aid over this uh, over some scarred areas, and um, luckily for us, it, it seems to it, it seems to have. Especially, I'm probably only talking about ten years of experience. It's not not a long time in the grand scheme of things, but um, using your cattle to um, to uh, you know dig up or, or you know lightly you know sort of dig up the. Uh, ground all over the station, and, and letting you know that buffalo grass take over and, and and protecting your soils that way um, it is not only is it good for productivity, um, but we we reckon that um, that that can only that will improve and get better and better and better, um, and that's that's kind of our strategy at the moment. It's It'll. I reckon this next sort of four or five years, we'll learn a fair bit about ourselves. How much it's working? It definitely that that has that strategy sort of plateaued. It got it got a lot better very quickly, and then it, it sort of just stabilised. But um, in amongst that sort of last fifteen or twenty years, I'm talking about, we've had a huge flood event on the station. Um, some really dry years again. So we sort of reckon. Um, that it's plateaued, that the rangeland condition has plateaued definitely or has got to a, to an acceptable level or to, you know, in some places a fair or a pretty good level and then um, in in some pretty rough, you know, seasonal conditions um, and then we've had this amazing year this year so we, we averaged 200 millimetre or eight inches of rain and we've had nearly 600 this year and it's just fallen beautifully it's just been amazing to see the country jump away again. So we're kind of working on the principle that if we can um, sort of hold the, you know, hold the hold the fort in 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 a rough run of seasons, um, and just sort of you know be stable, and then it, it you know it gets away and improves in a, in a better run of seasons. So um, I'll be able to tell you in ten years' time whether that whether that worked or not that strategy, but. And yeah i don't know mechanical intervention is is probably a good thing for you know probably makes a lot of sense on a lot of places, um, but just on this station it's just I, I can't every time I jump in an airplane and I fly around i just it's just too big a it's just too big a place to make a, to make a start um, using machines to try and slow down the water on this place it, like i said it 's dominated by these rivers. And mountains and the gradient of water just flowing off the place is just, just, it's just too quick. And, um, we just tend to, I, I, I just tend to look at, uh, um, thinking I could spend a month mucking around with bulldozers and graders on this station. It's definitely a place for that, but I'd rather spend that month or six weeks mustering our cattle. Um, you know, getting, uh, especially if it, if it is a marginal season, just, just muster your cattle, sell back, um, and just get the, the numbers of cattle off the station. Um, and it, it, a lot of times on a cattle station, you don't have months and months and months to throw at a you know s- well, you know any specific sort of you know uh, activity on a station. You've got a certain amount of time that you can do any good. I, I I reckon mustering your cattle, getting your numbers of cattle off the place, especially if it's if the season's you know looks like it's going to chuck it in. That's, that's my most effective, I believe on Bijamai, that's the most effective thing that I can do for the rangeland and it's the most effective, uh, you know, obviously it's how we make money as well. So, um, that is kind of our strategy and definitely has worked up to a point and it's just, it'll be, yeah, the next year or two, I reckon will be, um, we'll be watching it very closely to see if we can, let the place continue to improve, you know, just have to, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, we'll have to, um if you came back in five years' time, we'll be able to tell you whether or not it worked or not.
1: Don't worry, I'll be back here in five years. Um, how, for the last part uh, of our country discussion, um, what kind of rangeland monitoring do you undertake, if you undertake any? How, how do you, I guess, yeah, monitor?
2: Um well, once again my wife is you know she's uh, our local land care group has developed a uh, a pasture monitoring tool um, uh, which is a you know it's a it's an app on a on an iPad or a phone and um, so you know we're really interested in it we really uh, appreciate the fact that you have to you have to monitor um, not only monitor, but, you know, record how you're going and, you know, even, even your own eyes can tell lies a bit at times. So to have, you know, real data to tell you which way your country's moving backwards or forwards is good for everybody. Um, so we, uh, have got warms and PMS sites, which are, were department, um, you know, uh, uh, the Department of Agriculture, I think it was in the late 70s, started putting those sites in and recording what was there. And we, um, we continue, uh, to, uh, to record that data ourselves. Uh, once every five years, we go around and, and we, we get a, uh, we employ a, a person to come in and do it, just so it's a, you know, it's an objective. You know, person that doesn't have a dog in the fight sort of thing, it was, whatever that word's called, you know, that, where the, you know, there's not somebody that's biased can, so they can come in and get a really objective view of how the station's going. And we do that once every five years, whether it's rained or it's not, or, you know, what, you know, we just coincidentally enough, we did it in 2015, 2020, and they were both fantastic years, but it's sort of more, um, it doesn't tell just that story of if you've had a good season. Obviously, if you're growing plants and shrubs and bushes and trees, it, you know, it takes all that into account as well. So, yeah, we, we do take all that pretty seriously. Um, it's, it's good for us. It's good for us. It's good for, um, uh, it's good to have that information for yourself, but it's, it's good to have that information for others as well. Um, you know, there's been times on Bijamai, uh, where, and in the Gascoyne and right across Australia where you've got to justify whether or not you're doing a, a good job of farming this country and looking after, you know, the rangeland. And um, it, that just helps your helps you cause, yeah.
1: So moving on to the infrastructure section, let's start off by talking about fences.
2: Um, well, it's, we, we, I was sort of saying before, we don't have a lot of fences on the station. The, the, the outside boundary... Uh, we have seven or eight neighbours, I think, and we the the, the the whole of the outside of the boundary or the boundary fence of Bijimira is, is is fenced. Um, that fence would be sort of less than twenty years old, between twenty years old and five years old, I think. Most of that fence now
1: is that like a four strand bar? Yeah,
2: four strand. Uh, uh, it's, it's because it's their neighbours' fences. They're sometimes they're, they're all a bit different depending on what the neighbour wants as well, but. <laughs> You know, that's a, that's been a pretty big task, um, in itself. Um, we're coming from, it used to be a sheep station once upon a time and, you know, there wasn't a lot of money to just, yeah, once everybody started going into cattle stations, it was a pretty big challenge getting that boundary fence up actually. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you can't sort of go and put 300 k's of fence up in a year. You've just got to sort of bite off sections and a lot of the time neighbours can be, Pretty hard work to deal with, or they don't want to put a fence up, or they don't have the money to put a fence up. So it's you know you just you got to chip away at that as best you can. Um, So there's a boundary fence that goes right the way around the place, which has just been absolutely invaluable. Um, To be able once again to be able to control numbers of you know your cattle and keep your neighbours' cattle out and all that sort of thing is really important. That was kind of the priority. Um, We've got two sale paddocks. which are f- trockelbock full at the moment. It's been a wonderful year. Um, and those paddocks can be used for sale cattle. We also, one of them's a heifer paddock, but they don't necessarily, you know, one might have feed and one might not have, just depending on the season. So they're kind of flexible. You you can use those paddocks for anything or sometimes you haven't got anything in them at all because there's no feed in them. So.
1: Is that still a four-strand barb on yep. Amazon?
2: Well? Yeah. Um. Uh yeah, two barb and two plain. One of them is yeah, um, one of them's got a uh, thousand heifers in it at the moment, and we'll be looking to get into them at Easter time. And the other's got I think it's about four hundred and fifty or five hundred females in it as well, younger type cattle. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's once again it'd be pretty painful. Like those fences cross, you know, pretty major river systems, and it's yeah, not certainly not bulletproof fence, that's for sure. It's you know, cattle can definitely get out of it. So,
1: do you have any flood fencing on the place then? If the if the rivers are so wide,
2: ah, uh, no, not really. You just you you put you you, put, you run a fence across it. It just gets washed over when there's a river, and you just start again. It's a pretty common story on on it's Not not um not a huge amount. There's three crossings of the of the lines. Uh, and, uh, two major crossings of the Gascoyne, um, and then countless creeks and like most stations do, just sort of countless creeks and things that on, on the boundary fences as well. But, yeah, you probably spend as much as a month of your year fencing on this place, depending on how much the rivers are run and, and, uh, you know, this year that's pretty well all we've done, um, is, is put fences up. So, uh, which is a good thing, not a bad thing.
1: So if you've got mostly just a boundary fence, so your, your cow, calf units and your herd bulls are kind of, you know, just, they've got their probably home country and they just hang about there. And you've got some, some paddocks though. So you've got obviously sale cattle. That makes sense to keep them segregated away from everyone. Your heifers, is that for joining or is that for, oh, I guess for joining and then after they've been joined to come? No, call?
2: no, well, no, really the, probably the, so they'd be yearling cattle. So, you know, you'd, mm, they, they could be as young as six months old. You're keeping heifers and, and you know, as, as old as 18 months old, but generally speaking, uh, about, you know, 10 or 12 months old is a bit of a rule. Um, and really the idea of that is to, um, of, of putting them in a paddock is to just let them grow up a bit and keep them away from bulls. Um, just, you know, let them find their feet, um, You you do definitely get some that that get in calf, but the 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 main idea of that is just to actually keep them away from from bulls and try and get to two without getting pregnant and grow up a bit and sort of learn how to be a cow. Um, You know, we'll we'll muster them a couple of times and then spread them out again. You know, so you just get that little bit more handling into them as well. But younger cattle like that, if they're just sort of thrown into your herd on Bijamire, at least they just get knocked around a bit and. um, you know they—they they just need a bit of a soft. They just need a soft twelve months. They need a good paddock, and if they—if they've uh, they been weaned off, and um, if they've been weaned off and they're youngest type cattle, and they just get sort of thrown in in, in amongst the wolves, you, you sort of look at them in twelve months' time, and they haven't grown. They just, you know, they yeah, they just got to look after a bit. And the same goes for you, your yearling herd bulls as well. I just. Oh, they—they're actually usually twenty-four months old. Your your bulls that you buy each year, but I just lock them in a paddock on the other side of the station, and um, for the for that same reason, you just chuck them out in the herd, and they start fighting and, and working, and you know, just uh, you know, as young as as young animals, they just just don't grow properly. They don't get up and uh, and get that pet the stre- you know sort of strength and power about them. Like you do if you can get them to 36 months old and just let them sort of, you know, give them a, give give them a bit of an easy start. There's a bit of a lesson I learned here, I reckon.
1: How much surface water is, or permanent surface water is on Bidjimaya versus your water points where you've got to pump out of a bore? Uh, there's about a hundred
2: odd or just short of a hundred, between 90 and a hundred water point, you know, man-made water points on the station and the, and the, and the river, and the two river systems. Uh, it's very seasonal. Um, it is very seasonal, but uh, there there would be no permanent water. Like there's no permanent water, but you'd say that there's, um, you know, it's hard to put a number on it. But there, semi, uh, the river is full of semi permanent water. That um, if it hasn't rained or the rivers haven't run for probably six or seven months, you know that number starts to dwindle pretty quickly. But I, I'd reckon at the moment. You know, it's been a wonderful year here, There's, so it's not like a really a great... Um, it's not a great uh, year to, to sort of be saying this, but on any, uh, on any normal year, by now, um, it's nearly Christmas, um, it, there'd be 95% of the cattle on the station would be getting a drink on, from a man-made water point at Bid, on Bidjemiah. Um And when the cattle can just drink out of the river, they will... But it, it does dry up and, uh, you know, anybody that, uh, especially staff that haven't worked here for a long time, or haven't, sorry, haven't worked here before, they'll be sort of wondering why you've even got windmills on this place for the first, you know, they'll, they'll go on a water run and hardly see an animal. But um, once that water starts to dry up, they'll go, wow, I didn't realise there's this many cattle on this station. They... they uh, you have to you have to obviously be able to provide them a good clean drink, um, all year round and uh, and in, in any seasonal conditions and, and that's yeah the sem- there, there is not a lot of permanent water on on the station yeah.
1: When you or oh, I suppose these ninety to one hundred water points have been probably put in over the history back from sheep days to current cattle days. Uh, what is the breakdown or, or, and going forward with any new development? Um, what do you prefer, like turkeys' nests, um, tanks and troughs, dams?
2: Um, Bidjima has, generally speaking, uh, when you go mastering, you master about 12,000 head of cattle. But most of the year, you know, you you have to find a drink for uh, about 10,000 head of cattle um, over over 100-odd water points plus the river. So a lot of the time you're not... You know, on average, there's, there might be a hundred head of cattle at a water point, you know what I mean? Just, so, you know, you don't have to, we don't have big numbers on this place, so we don't, you know, the infrastructure is pretty simple, actually. It, it, it's still a challenge to get everything a drink, like, we're working pretty hard on it, you know, like, come, the, when it gets to summer, it's like everybody's pretty, pretty flat out making sure that everything's got a drink still, but, um, you your, your typical, windmill on bidmeye or water point on bidm will be uh, we're about 50 50 solars and windmills um, some places have got if, if there's a good mop of cattle there we'll have a windmill and a solar um, and 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 possibly a backup bore as well in case you get short or you know it, 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 you can't catch up but um, and we will use uh, t- you know tanks a fiberglass tank or a mostly fibreglass tanks, or or you've got your plastic tanks as well, but just for whatever reason, just mostly fibreglass tanks is sort of what my father did, kept that going a bit myself. Um, And just one, you know, sort of uh, on a a tank moundering and just a trough off the side of that, which doesn't have to be, you know, we've just got a trough mould, we just make our own troughs. And that's, you know, a sort of a, a 12 to sort of 15 feet long sort of you know, uh you know, cattle trough, pretty shallow sort of a of a of a deal and um and it works well for us, yeah. And solars are you know, as if, um, you know, everybody knows that solars are just the most amazing, they just been the biggest revolution through, you know, this part of the world anyway, or for us as a business, they're just just fantastic being able to guarantee you know, provided they haven't broken down. But you know, is uh yeah, just to be able to you know, the last sort of 15 or 20 years, we we used to, you know, once upon a time we used to really struggle getting cattle to drink and it was always a slog and you just have to devote the whole of summer to, you know, in some instances, you know, you used to have to cart a lot of water and it was really tough going and it's uh, just the, just having, you know, reliable, you know, wonderful solar systems coming to this part of the world just just been absolutely, you know, like a real revolution, just fantastic for your cattle and for your workers and for your business, and it's it's been the most, been that's been the greatest jump in the game. Yeah.
1: So when you say previous to solars coming to this part of the world, um, sometimes it would be a real hard slog. Is that because it was more of a wind drought than actually not having the water in the ground to pump N- up? No,
2: nah, just just wind. Yeah, you just couldn't you couldn't guarantee that you were going to get enough wind to pump enough water to get your cattle to drink. It was always plenty of sun here. It's just and. Um, you're just going to pump water for eight hours a day every day and like we don't need a lot of water but we just need it to you know you just need it to, to be pumped so um, a lot of the water infrastructure you know because it was a sheep station they didn't need that much water for sheep um, or you didn't don't need that much water to keep a, a mob of sheep going but as soon as you know my, my father Lachlan once he made the transition to get out of sheep and into cattle it was just a Titanic, bloody effort! You know, in a lot of instances, going out and re-drilling bores to, you know, and, and finding water, and you know, it's just this enormous effort. Uh, most of the water, infra- well, nearly all of the water infrastructure wasn't good enough to keep cattle going. So there was this massive, you know, the, the amount of work that was done in a pretty short space of time to guarantee that your cattle were getting a drink was a is a big reason why the you know, the, you know, is a is a good cattle joint. You know, it's just, that's just one of the big, uh, one of the most important things you can do is just make sure your cattle are getting a good drink every day and uh, and solars have been a big, big, big part of that. That wasn't there at the start when Lockie was, was setting the place up but that's as that came on, uh, as they started to become more available and, uh, you know, the, the cost was, you know, they started to become cost effective and, you know, we, everybody started to embrace them. Um' it's just been just been amazing yeah still one of those one of uh, you know your, your solar pumps are still one of those things, even though they've been here for twenty years now. you still just drive past them and just marvel you know how wonderful they are yeah
1: well what about yards what uh how many yards do you have or do you use um do you have permanent or panel yards, and what are they made out of?
2: Uh, we've got fifteen sets of cattle yards on and um, They're all permanent yards. We we carry uh, a, a sling with with twenty or thirty panels on it, just you know to help split yards up and stuff. But yeah, that's yeah. We're lucky once again. My father set the you know had a pretty big drive and setting the place up. Really, where well. the cattle yards are all steel yards, basically all less than twenty years old.
1: So your dad, you know, was responsible for. uh changing a lot of the sheep yards into cattle yards or building brand new yards and um have you had much to do with changing yards in your time here as well
2: um no i did a pretty good job he did a pretty good job of building them i did a very good job of building them and the design of them is pretty good a lot of someone builds a cattle yard you're not you're sort of not going to rip it down and start again or change too much you just kind of modify what's what's already there. What um, do you
1: look for if you got to build a brand new set of cattle yards today from from all the yards you've worked in, not just on Bidjemiah, but anywhere around the traps, what do you look for or would you be looking for in building a new set of yards?
2: Um, I probably wouldn't change too much. Uh, everybody's, once again, everybody's situation's a bit different. Uh, on average, uh, uh, we've got about 30 musters on the place and we muster about 12,000 head of cattle. So generally speaking, we're you know, on average, it can be as much as sort of 1500, um, and, and as few as 200. But on average, it's about, you're trying to yard about 400 head of cattle. So I reckon the beauty of what Lockie did at Bijimara is because they were all built so quickly to, together. But it doesn't really matter what, what you want. We've got a very simple race style draft, which works for us. Um, and, but one of the great things, that I really appreciate now is that they're all, pretty well all the same, bar two or three or older yards that were previously here that have been modified and mucked around with. They're all kind of exactly the same. So your crew can just yard and mob a cattle and it's all, it, there's a real
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: You know, every, every time, you know, you've got different people each year coming and mustering your cattle, but, and the cattle all know the same, kind of the same design yard. So it doesn't really matter, I reckon a lot of the, a lot of the time, what you use, if it's a pound or an overhead pound or a race draft or whatever you want. It's just, it's, it's really good, it's really good to have the same system every day of your muster and your cattle are getting handled the same way and it's, it just makes a big difference, I reckon. Um, but really, I, look, there's no right or wrong, there's no right or wrong way of building, building yards. Just have the bloody things. Like, I, it's, it still surprises me how people use panels as much as what they do. They're just, you know, you, you know, you, uh, a, a yard is not an easy thing to build, um, for sure. Um, and, you know, you gotta have the manpower and the expertise and the materials and all the things to, to, to build them and you know railway line and drill stem and stuff aren't as available as what they once were but um yeah it's a I, I, i'm very very grateful that we don't have to muck around with panels too much on those joints so are the cattle too actually
1: i'm sure the crew are as well Yeah, i would be can you talk to me a little bit about your homestead yards here and sort of the feedlot system you've got kind of built in there
2: yeah well that so that's one of the 15 sort of sets of yards is this one mile yards here. It's one mile away from the house. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, the factory, I suppose, of the, of the operation. So there's a camp that goes out and musters, but takes us a couple of months to muster or, you know, eight weeks or, you know, maybe, a, I think this year we mustered the place in about 60 days, which is, you know, really comfortable. Um, And, um, you know, it's pretty efficient sort of a, you know, way that you move around the station to try and clean the place up as best you can. But while that camp's moving around from yard to yard to yard to yard, obviously those yearling type cattle, um, are are getting trucked to the, to the main homestead yard here, which is very, you know, normal sort of, you know, it's what 95% of stations do around Australia. It's pretty, pretty stock standard sort of stuff. And then, um, and then the cattle are processed at, at these one mile yards, um, so those yearling cattle and you know whatever sale cattle that you find um, will arrive here, uh, arrive at the one mile yards, be unloaded. Um, usually, you know, into a pen where they can get a feed and a drink. Um, we've got a. Um, uh, y- usually, it's a couple. A lot of the time, it can be a couple, but usually just have two people just running this yard. You know, so they just handle all the cattle at the yard. It's just a full time job feeding processing and selling and loading and unloading and yeah, it's a pretty it's the big biggest job on the station actually. Um and uh you that so the guy this year he had one or two other people giving him a bit of a hand plus myself at times and you know Jody'd go down there and help a bit as well. But he you know it's as much as uh you know he's usually got a couple of thousand head of cattle um that he'll be feeding and handling and stuff at any given time and loading trucks. Uh, uh, you know, loading trucks a couple of times a week as well, and there's a feed, It is a feed. It's a feed lot operation. It's a feed lot, but we don't hold cattle in there for a long time. Generally speaking, they might the most you want them in there for is about a week. But the idea is is that they uh, arrive at Bijimi. They 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 would be they would be drafted and sorted and weighed and and marked the following day and split into their lines. It's a sort of a four or five way draft, so they just they come through. They they split into their lines um, and you know male female weights or you know uh, adult cat whatever it happens to be and then they just go straight out. It is a feed lot of sorts, but it's just it's it's bunkers. Um, we've just got uh, four or five sort of feed yards where you can just feed two or three or four hundred head of cattle comfortably and everything get a feed and a drink and just do well for the week that they're there until they're waiting for a truck to be sold or. I mean, generally speaking, you know, the the heifer line, all the heifers go into a pen and then they sort of build up for about a week or 10 days whenever you can get the opportunity to, I can come in to split them up into keepers and sales and whichever directions they've all got to go and then cattle have got to be walked out or a lot of your younger cattle that are less than 200 or 220 kilos, they'll, they'll be drenched and marked and, you know, sort of have a, Get a bit of you know, uh, get a little bit of training in the yards, and then be walked out into a paddock. Um, so yeah, that's the heartbeat of the station for sure. It's like you know, it's pretty, um, pretty. There's always a lot going on at the one mile yards. It's for sure um, for, for for a couple of months.
1: Why did you make the decision to invest in uh, installing or building concrete bunks rather than just feeding out cattle? You know, just chucking in round bales or, or- Getting the round bales on their side and rolling them out, and well, you know all the other different ways we see it done.
2: Uh, I think, um, oh, it's just every time you throw hay on the ground, you just the wastage. Uh, you know, is obviously a pretty pretty big deal. Um, it's just trying to effectively feed your cattle as as best as best you can. It's def- definitely not like perfect what we do, but it's just making sure every animal you've got has got good access to. To to a good feed and and they're not losing weight while they're in the system. I think like um, I haven't done the sums for a while, but um, generally speaking, I'd, I'd just probably have to go back over it again to make sure that. We're all right, but I mean, cattle prices are amazing at the moment, um, so it might it might be a, a little bit better than what and feed prices aren't too bad, so feed prices are pretty normal cattle prices are really good You you'd probably, you know, if you, if you weren't feeding your cattle to the best of your ability now you'd be throwing away a bloody lot of money um, but generally speaking in any normal year I'd say 7 or 8 years out of 10 whenever we we just break even when we're feeding our cattle down there so we're not making money out of it and we're not losing money but we're just holding the condition of those cattle to, to the point of sale so that if they're there for a week or 10 days they're as much weight as they're gaining, um, you know, is, is, is directly gobbled up by, you know, the cost of feeding them. But when at the point of that they go on that truck and then they're weighed for sale, you, yeah, you, you, you're not losing money and they're, they're in a good, they're presented well and they look well and they go, you know, the people that buy them, they, they're not, those cattle haven't been knocked around. They haven't been hungry. There's no bad doers. that yeah, that's, um, about the best way that I can explain it, yeah. And plus, you just want to look after your cattle too, you know. Nobody likes to see you. Nobody wants to see your cattle go hungry if you, they don't have to. Um, and uh, the sooner that you can get a good feed into their guts, they're just happy, you know, and healthy, and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's the that's the theory behind that. And, and a good clean drink of water, of course. So that's it, if they are feeding a couple of thousand head of cattle um, down at those yards at any given time, you try and keep the number down less than that. Uh, if, if possible it's just you know you try and keep the cattle flowing through it as best you can but yeah that feeding cattle is a pretty big job but we've got a pretty rudimentary system it's nothing flash what we do but we just you know feed in the bunkers the best we can and and uh and um it it just uh it's it, it, it to for my you know for, for mine it's you know it's the uh it just makes good business sense to, to keep you, keep the nick on your cattle as best you can. And I, I wouldn't mind betting that this year with such fantastic cattle prices, every, every day those cattle are down there, you're actually making money. So that's what we're, that's what we're all here for.
1: So the last little bit under infrastructure is like a little subsection is technology and innovation. And this can really cover anything, whether you're using telemetry or satellite imagery or you know, there's, um, some people experimenting with collars. I mean, there's just, you know, how long is a piece of string? Is there anything in this space that you're either doing or interested in and want to know more about?
2: Yeah, I'm interested in anything to do, you know, with making your life easier on a station. I, I sort of am a bit of a believer in just doing the simple things well. So, I mean, there's no, you know, point in making these, you know, big technological advances if you... There's still... you Generally speaking, on a station, there's always something simple... And and easy or not simple and easy, but um, just you know the simple things are your cattle. Are you improving your water infrastructure, making sure they're getting a drink or your yards, or the, you know the really, the, the bare basic parts of still owning a cattle station? Um, you know you you've got to still got to focus on them first: cement, steel, you know the the, the not technological things, but um, fences, um. You know, I tend to sort of focus on that, but I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be be pretty keen to start. Um, you know, this water telemetry, whatever the word is, you know, telemetry, telemetry. Yeah, I'll get a quote, start doing some quotes up and stuff. I'm not sure that I'll absolutely commit to it, but anything to ensure that your cattle are getting a really good drink, um, and making sure that every single day they go to that trough. That they're getting a drink is is important. As much as you try your hardest um, and you get your your infrastructure as best you can, uh, and you keep improving it, and you know of all the things you do, you, you still can't help a breakdown. If something breaks down, and when it's hot like this, we'll do our mills a couple of times a week. I will check all the waters a couple of times a week now, but anything to help that, even if it even if it's a doesn't make a lot of sense financially. Um, I think it's just a, you know, anything to help that I reckon is important. Um, the, where I'd love to, it's, I don't know if technolo- technology is the right word, but probably spaying female cattle has just become so important on Bidjami. Like it's, it's one of the, sort of one of the major pillars of our business now is spaying old cows, spaying, you know, poor doers, you know, cows that are bloody mad or whatever. It's just become such an important part of our business, but that's a pretty cumbersome difficult thing to do, spaying old cows. It's um geez, I'd love to something I've been going on about for a while, but I'd love to see a, a chemical spay or some some sort of spay that's you know, not the Willis or or web spaying method, you know, that
1: a non-surgical as, option. Yeah.
2: As, as important as solar pumps have been and, and solar power has been for Bijima, that if, you know, and, and, you know, the industry as a whole, like a, a, a non-surgical spaying technique would be like a revolution. It would be a game changer, um, for, for the whole, you know, it's something we've really embraced and tried really hard with, but if that could be made, um, Available to everybody and, and, you know, and it works and, you know, if, if, if that would be, there, yeah, that'd be something I'd be really interested in. Um, and, you know, it's very exciting. All the other, you know, bits and pieces, you know, the technological advances that will help us in the bush. You know, there's, you know, uh, I love the idea of a tag being Put in their ears so that we can find them easier at mastering time and, and help, you know, sort of, you know, make sure your master percentage is as high as it possibly can be and all the information that that'll, you know, provide. Um, you know, that's all, you know, that's all, you know, really exciting and I'll embrace it, um, you know, if and when it comes. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep a pretty close eye on all that sort of stuff for sure.
1: Well, that leads into our third section pretty well. It's a good segue, and so this section is cattle, and uh, um, so we'll keep on this line of thinking of spaying and bring in preg testing as well. So you said earlier that you kind of go through your cattle every two years or so, and that's when you'll spay.
2: Yeah. So um, yeah, we spay. We go through all our old, all our old cows every two years. Um, we didn't spay this year, this twenty twenty one. You just got me. Uh, we uh, bring all our breeders through the yards. We draft when we muster and bring them all our breeders through and uh, give them a botulism shot. We drench them, bang tail them. Um, for you know, on on uh, that's what we did this year. Next year we'll spay. So uh, typically, uh, you know, you'll have a couple of hundred breeders. You'll draft a couple of hundred breeders uh, in any you know given sort of mustering day as on a, as a bit of a rule. Um, about sort of 10 or 15% of them will be older than 10 years old. So we can tell that because we age brand them when they're, when they're weaners or, you know, yearling cattle. You, this year's 2021. 20, so they've got a one branded on their shoulder for the one, you know, 21. Next year they'll have a two for 22, three for 23, and so on and so forth. And, uh, as soon as they turn 10, you just draft them off. Um, and then you bring them around again at the end. Um, we've got vet crushers in all our yards now, and uh, you bring them back through it. It's really hard to find somebody that can spay and be in the mustering camp all the time. So they basically got to be in the camp all the time. It's every second day you 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 spaying, and it's not huge numbers. So mo- a lot of the time, it's uh, the, the most common number that you be go- weep at Bidjumar would Be going through is somewhere between thirty and fifty. Um, every second day in the afternoon. It takes quite a lot of time, you know, there's a couple of hours work there, at least, um, depending on how many there is. So, um, and that process, generally speaking, you, you say if there was 60 cows that you were looking at in the afternoon, it's pretty religiously can be split up into thirds. A 30-old third cows you can't spay at all. They'll either be too far gone, pregnant, or they'll, um, yeah, well, that's basically pretty well the only rule. Uh, the only reason why you can't, you just can't physically spay them. Um, a third, you can spay, um, and you want to spay. Um, they might be in very good order. Um, they, they, they might be feeding. They might have been feeding a calf for a wiener, and you make the decision. You can sort of see in their udder that, that, they, that they are feeding something. Um, if they're feeding something and they're not in real good order, it makes sense, to, and you can spay them. You, you spay them so that you can. Sell them next year. Um, so that's all pretty straightforward. And you don't want to take the chance of, like, removing a cow to sell her and she's feeding a calf. It's, you know, it's not, 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 not the done thing. Um, and if you're 100% sure that a cow is not feeding a, an animal, um, and she's, even if she's, I generally speaking draw the line at about five months pregnant, if she's any further pregnant than five months, I'll just bush her and let her drop that calf, unless she's an idiot or she's, you know, she, she's mad or something going on with it. You know, you might stretch that to six or seven months if you're 100% confident that she's not going to drop a calf. But um, yeah, and that the the, the other third um, will be cows that you sell immediately, so you're 100% sure that she doesn't have a calf at foot um, and she's in good enough order to sell. So you you sell that cow straight away. And it works really well for us, but it's, um, yeah, the challenge is, is, is to, is to find that person that can actually physically do that spay and preg testing is, is no worries. I don't have, I can't spay. And generally speaking, I'm doing something else on the station anyway, but having that person in the camp all the time for months, of, you know, for a couple of months doing that job is, that's the, that, uh, that's really tricky and you've got to really work hard to get that, get that guy on board and, yeah.
1: Can you explain the, the thinking behind, uh, why you cull, uh, or spay at 10 versus, you know, 8 or 12 or just kind of looking at the cattle? I mean, is it, is it everything? 10 is, is eligible for spaying or do sometimes you're like, oh, you might, you're still looking pretty good and something might hang around until she's 12 or 15 or?
2: Uh, I think you've got to draw the line somewhere. Um, and 10, oh, there's no two ways about it. Sometimes those 10-year-old cows are just still in the, you know, they're just like people, That like a, a, a sort of, you know, the, probably the equivalent is sort of a 50- or 60-year-old person and some 50-year-old people are just still just, you know, still as fit as fiddles, aren't they? So you feel a bit mm-hmm. tough on them. They might be, you know, they might be 9 out of 10 cows, you know. They're just absolutely magnificent. But you've got to draw the line somewhere. A lot of instances... You know, you're not in the camp to make those decisions. So you've got to, you say to your heads, you, you kind of take the decision out of their hands and say, anything that's 10 years old, we try. Like I said, a lot of them you can't get. So, um, you know, a 10 year old cow, if you couldn't get, if you couldn't spare her this year, you try and, it'll be a year off and then she's 12. And then, you know, if you miss her again, she'll be 14. So all of a sudden, it doesn't, doesn't take that long to still, doesn't take that much to still have old cattle in your herd. But 10 is a, just a good, there's definitely some good still, strong, productive cattle. But if you're doing it every two years, then you've got to, if you're doing it every year, you probably stretch it out to 11 or 12. But yeah, that's just how, uh, you know, we, we also want to drench and botch our cattle every couple of years as well. So you, you struggle to get everything in, you struggle to fit everything in in a day if you yeah, it's just, it's just a system that works for us. So if you want really happy, strong, powerful cattle, that's just the system that works well for us. And we, we start on 10 year old cows and, um, and you kind of being preemptive, you, there's not many cows are, are starting to lose teeth or their legs are starting to go on them and stuff by the time they turn 10, they're still pretty strong, but it's just probably retiring them. Before time and not after. You're better off getting, doing it too early than too late, I reckon.
1: Is preg testing a tool that's used on Bijimaia?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And
1: if so, like, which, which animals are you preg testing everything or are you making the decision as they come through?
2: I'm not like, I'm not like really, um, obsessive about like fertility. Um, we've got like a pretty, a reasonably high, um, content uh, sort of a drought master herd. So, um, you know, Brahman type drought master sort of cross cattle. Um, So I'm not like, I I don't go crazy on fertility. It's pretty fertile country so we don't have to get too picky about it. Um, But we would obviously, if we're suspicious about a cow that hasn't, doesn't look like she's got uh, a a younger type animal once she's sort of turned three or she's got a, she's three years old on her shoulder. We'll pick on them a bit if they look like they're being a bit slack. Uh, but, um, yeah, spaying and, spaying and preg testing is a really important part of what we do because, uh, you, if you can just trim up your herd and get your, your slackers out of a lot in marginal country and a marginal season, the little bits all add up, you know. You, you, you the, you know, they're like sort of one percenters. And if you can just, if you, if you can make sure that you're um, uh, re- really making sure that any cows on that station aren't pulling their weight, then they're only eating the feed or something that is trying. So you've got to make sh- it's a real animal welfare issue, uh, or it's a, it's a real tool. You know, spaying is is the greatest animal welfare. Tool that we have on this station, um, we don't have really very very few cat- animals die on Bidjima. Um You know they, they they end up dying going away on a truck, which we're you know really proud of. Um, you don't have animals getting old and uh, you know getting old and skinny as, as much as you possibly can. You have injuries and you see cows that pop shoulders and things. But if you're getting if you're getting them when they're ten years old, you really that that. That's pretty minimal. Um, You're not letting cows get old enough that they lose their teeth and they find it hard to go out and get something to eat, and you know it's a struggle for them. It's hard hard work being a cow. Um, So that's we we will always um, you know unashamedly d sex cattle as 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 much as we um, as much as we possibly can and, and as effectively as we can, because it's a it's it's a much better sight watching a. A 11 or 12 year old cow go away on a truck as big, fat, and happy than watching her when she's 13 or 14 or 15 or 16, you know, dying a bag of bones underneath a tree uh, after she hasn't had a drink for three days because she can't get up anymore. And that's just the reality of being a cow in a bush. In the bush, it's, it's, um, you know, you, you really, it's a, we love the fact that we, we've got a choice, a choice about how these, you know, cattle can. Uh, can die with a you know in, in in really good strong order and you know with a with a high quality of life still so yeah that's uh, and and of course trying to make money out of it as well that's you know um, is a uh, yeah it's something we push really hard and, and say so to a lot of people.
1: What is the mating strategy here at Biji Um
2: We leave our bulls in all year round. It's too, just too hard to control otherwise. Um,
1: and that is that will slowly come back to what we spoke about first up in this episode with the you know not knowing when the rain's coming and and the
2: oh no not really no not really it's just um it's it just too difficult we, we and... can only we can muster the place it, it's a big station it takes us a couple of months to muster it's a it's a pretty you know it's it's not an easy thing to go and muster um and. You, you, you it, it's difficult to just go out and grab bulls and and just sort of put type move them in and out of, move them backwards and forwards out of this rangeland and expect them to just do the job. You know, like, you know, the, the your cows and bulls and all your cattle that live in this part of the world, they they love living in an area. Um, they uh, they live their whole life in that area. They know what to eat in that area. They know they know everything about it. And if you just remove them and take them and put them somewhere else, it just upsets them. It just upsets their rhythm. Um, you know you 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 probably um, I'm I'm not sure. I've never really ever tried to take bulls in and out of an area, but I I, I and I, and I don't really know the. What the benefits of it would be. Maybe you get a higher calving percentage or you get all your calves all at the same time of year and all. I understand all that, but it's it's pretty disruptive for an animal to, you know, to shift them around like that a lot. You're better off just letting them settle and, you know, they're pretty territorial. There's no, there's no, um, fences at all on Pijamaya bar or a couple of paddocks. You know, it's, there's probably 1.4 million acres of just one paddock. And those cows, um, you know, they're creatures of habit. They just, Generally speaking, within two or three windmills, they just rock up to the same windmill for a drink their whole life. And, um, and the same for your, for your male cattle as well. They just, they, uh, they don't, I don't really reckon they like to be shifted around too much. Yeah. They just want to live where they live and, and, uh, yeah, to try not to interrupt them too much, to be honest.
1: Is the nutrition available to, um, like unpredictable because you don't you don't really know when the rain's coming. That it's kind of hard to say. I, I want all my calves to drop, you know, at this time of year when it's going to be the best feed because you don't really know when the best feed's coming because the rain's so unpredictable. Yeah, Whereas I say like I, up I, in I the think Kimberley, that's a
2: pretty big part of it. Yeah. So yeah that 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 would that's a pretty big part of it. I'd say if you if you lived in an area where you thought I'm gonna I'm gonna be in a really good feed in a, within a couple of months of this certain date, then you would probably Try and get your carving, you know, your, your carving to fall about then, so you have got the best chance of getting them a fee, Whereas we just, it's just not like that here. We we can't. There's no point that. There's no point that we could have. There's no between January and and July. There's no month that has more rain than another in that, and it can fall any time around then. Um, so there's just not a lot of benefit. I don't think. You're probably just complicating it a bit more than what it has to be for not a lot of benefit. I I I I think I, I don't. I'm not aware of that, but too many people in this part of the world that 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 take balls in and out.
1: No, oh, well, uh, this is the whole point of Station Sticky Beak is to show that just because one thing works really well, say in the Kimberley or the Top End, doesn't mean it can be translated and be as successful across. All the different regions, you know, you, you're under a very different set of circumstances. I I
2: could be, I could be, I could be persuaded on that if I could, if I went, if I I haven't sort of part of you, you know, your job as owning a station is making sure that you're, um, that you're still going out and trying to, um, you know, generally speaking, it means just not taking, you know, sitting there talking to a bloke about it in a pub or whatever, but actually physically going to their place and, you know, hopefully with a bit of luck seeing it in practice and making you, your own decision about it, um, but that that could be something that I could be persuaded on. But um, yeah, everybody's not not just everybody's stations different between the Kimberleys and 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 Bidjumar Station or you know Alice Springs or Ralston in Queensland. Um, you know, it's it's different from next door neighbour. You know, the next door neighbours to us have got a completely different setup than what we do here at Bimbi for. Um, for good reason, it's just, you know, it's um, everybody's situation's different, so yeah.
1: What do you look for when you're culling cattle, asides from age?
2: Oh, just all the normal, just all the normal things, temperaments are, mm. What's you know, normal
1: in this part of the world?
2: Oh, just, oh, look, the same reason everybody would would cull cattle in this part of the world, um, you know, temperament's a huge one, um, uh. Yeah, the, the, and just temperament, um, you know, the, the, the actual power of an animal, you know, what I sort of loosely call its athleticism, you know, its ability to, to um, live and do well in this part of the world um, and fertility are the, are the main issues. So generally speaking, you mightn't be able to tell fertility at a really young age, but, yeah, especially if a cow's a bit older and she doesn't look like she's pulling her weight, you, you, you colour for that, just all the normal things that people... Yeah, just, just cattle that do well in this part of the world.
1: Coming back to sort of earlier on when we were discussing the feed sources and what's available to cattle here, what do you have to do in terms of nutrition? Do you need to, uh, supplement at different times of the year or do you find that this country carries itself pretty well?
2: Um, well, we've had, you know, once again, probably had like the best year I reckon Bijamai's ever had. Um, uh, it's just been the most amazing season, and it's just before Christmas. The cattle are in just still in just really the best order you could ever hope for going into Christmas, going into a, you know going into the summer. Um, but we're feeding lick out now. Uh, that country is definitely you know the tuckers definitely hide off, but the cattle are still in really strong order. We 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 feed a, a lot of lick blocks.
1: So uh, is this like a urea lick?
2: It's a urea lick. It's thirty percent urea blocks, um, and we will. F- We will feed them out, um, as they want them, uh, as they, the good thing about feeding a block as tangy or as unpalatable as a 30% urea block, you know, that they're not eating them for fun. So if you put them out, you know, we started chucking them out a couple of months ago and they sort of kicked them around for the first bit and ignored them, but they're into them now. Um, and we just, you, basically you just have them out all year round or you try, just, just have them out, and they'll tell you when they want to start using them. They'll just start, you know, when there's nothing obvious about it. sometimes. Some, some, yeah, it's, it, cattle, uh, cattle are funny when they'll start using leg. Um, but, yeah, once again, the good thing about using a block that's not a lolly is that when they, when they're using them, they're not using them for fun. They, they, they want them for a reason, so you don't argue with them, you just keep chucking them out, and, uh, yeah, it's lick is um great. they you um provided you try and use it the right way and people think you're mad for spending money on cattle at the moment that are in such good order but um yeah like anybody that's had anything to do with you know cattle before know that if you can keep their stomach healthy um as long as you can um for, yeah for as long as you can um, you know, uh, keep your cattle going. It, it it pays you pays you off when things start going crook. So, um, so it didn't rain now till June, um, which is very possible. Um, we could, in theory, you just keep. So, in, you know, you'll watch your cattle start dropping off. So, you know, it, it would it, by halfway through January, you could start to see your cattle as those. Calves and weaners start to get a bit bigger. You'll start to see your breeders drop off if you weren't feeding lick. They'd be in good order, but you would, you know, notice, you know, via their feces and their just their general condition that they're starting to drop off. Um, You could start feeding lick then, and it would be okay. But you you don't. It's not like you get a lift out of your cattle when you feed lick. You only ever just hold. So you just, if you feed lick now. And you just keep feeding it, you keep feeding it, you keep feeding it. You don't see that, you just don't see that drop off. You hold them at that good condition for longer, and then you just sort of cruise through to June. You've got cattle that are in fair condition. I'm um, still dropping, still dropping slowly, and still losing condition, but they're in fair condition going down instead of being in poor condition and going down. And soon as they, soon as it rains again, they, you know, they just turn around so much quicker. And and then you know, if it rains again. Um, and then, of course, by the time you get to Christmas time, if it hasn't rained properly, you know, you know, the theory behind it. it it's, it, it's, but it's a pretty valuable tool for us. We'd, uh, probably go through, you know, sort of on average, I, I, I was going to say 80 tonnes a year of lick, but I'd, I'd say it's probably closer to 60 this year. We've hardly used any, probably as much as, you know, probably less than 40 tonnes or one trailer, I reckon, this year, but yeah, I reckon it'd be as much as, uh, on average, it's probably somewhere between 40 and 60 tonnes a year, yeah.
1: What about weaning? How, in this part of the world, what is, as you said, this year has been a good year, but on an average year, what kind of weight are you weaning at and how do you handle your weaners afterwards?
2: Oh, this year is just um, you know, very unusual, uh, because of how strong an order they are. I, I, the, the main thing would, the, the way to, to describe that accurately would be, um, it was, was what we sell our yearling bulls off, what weights we sell our, on average. I th- generally speaking, you can pick a number between 280 and 300 kilos a year on average. Can be a lot less than that if you've had a pretty crook season. It can be as low as 250 kilos if it's been a bad one. And, a, and a, any normal seasons about 300, uh, close to 300 280 to 200, – 275 to 285 is somewhere in there. You can – seven years out of 10 will be about there somewhere. Uh This year, I just haven't – we haven't long finished mustering it, just haven't had the time that's well north of 300 kilos. I think it's 335
1: or 300 – So sorry, that's what they're coming off mum as or that's yeah. after a year off mum? No, that's what they're coming off mum as. Holy hot, so. Fox. Wow. Yeah. I thought you meant when you said yearlings that like – you know, you pull them off at one hundred and something, and a year later, when they've grown out a bit, that's what you're selling them at. So you can, in a good year, be pulling them off mum at pushing, three, oh, you know, two hundred fifty to three hundred kilos. Man, you
2: know, uh, once again, very unusual year this year, but you know, a lot of them milk teeth cattle at four hundred kilos there. Yeah, we we sent a we sent a load of cattle, one unusual year and amazing year like one in a hundred type year probably or one in fifty type year admittedly, but. Um, we did a load of, we did a load of bulls out of broom. And it was just, I think it was just two trucks. They were short for a boat or something. And they didn't want anything less than 300 kilos, uh, for that boat. So we had to draft. I actually wasn't here for the draft, but I was led to believe that they pulled off. There was only one out of sort of 10 of those Mickeys were less than 300 kilos, and they drafted them out of, you know, sort of one or two out of ten. So they took the – and, you know, quite commonly they're like six-, seven-month-old cattle. They're not very old. But your genuine genuine yearling cattle um, that were, you know, between 10 and 12 months or, say, 10 and 14 months old, for example, or most of them, you know, yeah, 10, 10 or 14 months old, um, they got weighed – so it's a hundred a sixteen hundred k trip. So they got weighed off the truck and got a drink and a feed. Sort of weighed the next day, but they averaged three hundred ninety nine kilos those cattle. So you know it is it is pretty extraordinary what this country can do in a in a in a in a any any normal sort of season. Really, this is an exceptional season. But yeah, it's it's really strong growing cattle. Yeah, re, really strong weight gains in this country when it's up and about.
1: What about in those really challenging ongoing dry times? What's the lightest you would pull a wiener off its mum?
2: Oh, you sell anything you can, you can,
1: you know. Are we know, talking geni- like a one day old calf there or are you? Oh, hundred to be able to
2: 180 kill- kilos. If, when it, when it, when things, when the wheels are falling off and you want, and you're having a genuine, you know, you, you're bailing, you're abandoning ship, you'll sell down as low as 180 kilos.
1: But is, is that what it is when you're pulling it off, mum, though? Yeah. See, this is what I love about Station Sticky Beak when, you know, coming from a part of the world where it's, it can be quite, um, normal to year and year out, year and year out, pull them off 80 kilos or even 50 kilos and think that that, but then, you know, when you're pulling off something early, it's 180. Like it's, it's amazing what the country can. Oh,
2: well, I'd say the people that are pulling cattle off at 50 kilos. So in 2010, um, which was a, we were pulling calves, so literally, if they were a two-day-old calf, we were pulling mm. them off their mothers. Um, but that hasn't really happened, um, you know, sort of before or since that it got that dry. That was a, you know, a, a, a record drought, sort of 2008, 9 and 10. Um, then that's the, that's what it got down to here at Bijima, and I, I remember that. But, um, even in a, in a prolonged, you know, dry than normal spell, for example, a three or four year period of where you're getting somewhere between 100 and 150 millimetres of rain, where the cattle are, are light. Um, uh, but you know, you'd say in fair condition or, you know, um, like yeah, sort body of. What is called
1: two or three? Yeah,
2: exactly. Um, you would, and, and, and once again, not really knowing what the future holds, you know, if you're mustering in the spring here, it doesn't have to rain at all, or it doesn't have to rain at all. You know, for the foreseeable future. So you're, you're sort of predict, you know, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst sort of story. You'll just sell down as, and in theory, you'll have very little cattle, uh, feed in any paddocks and stuff. So you'll just sell down as low as you possibly can. But generally speaking, I'm not aware of, you know, too many cattle buyers really wanting to buy cattle much under 180 kilos.
1: Yeah. Well, not I say, so I guess that's again, learning the differences of, of what people can do in different regions is it can and it is becoming for a handful of producers now uh, like standard practice to pull them off at say 80 kilos but then they they go into a wiener program where they've got pellets and they're kind of fed out to different weights before they're kind of kicked back out in the paddock um, but it, it is for some people they'll do it in really dry times and then others now have kind of decided to do it year in year out because they think they're gonna get better reconceptions with their cows like it's just kind of giving that cow a yeah. handicap. But it's just interesting that there's still a large difference. And I noticed that when I spoke to somebody in South Australia that when, and they've got more boss indicus type of cattle and only 130 mil rainfall average a year, but they can wean them a lot Yeah. Heavy. But oh, I mean, so it's so, uh, there's so many factors. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. And whether or not you draft, uh, mustering twice a year makes a big difference as well. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're talking about 130 mils of rain and you've got yaks, then you'll, you'll get them down. Yeah, you, you'd be, it'd be pretty tempting to, to, to wean off pretty light and, and get that cow cycling again. Um, and, uh, we, we do two laps a year here. So you're not afraid to leave a, 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 a fairly small weaner on because you, you know, you'll get it in six months time. But if you're not mustering, if you know you're not going to see it at 12 months, you're like, that, that bloody calf, that is just about, you know, it's going to be bigger than that cow in 12 months time. So, yeah, it just it, it. Once again, everybody's situation's a little bit different.
1: So you've made it to the final section. Congratulations! <laughs> it's been it's been a long slog, uh, which is people. So what can you tell me about staff in terms of training and education, um, living conditions? You know how you how you remunerate them not not the figures, but you know any you know if you have day rates or packages or things like that, and and just how you kind of guess, manage your people all around? Uh,
2: Bidjemiah is a big station. It does take quite a lot of people to uh, to make sure it runs properly. Um, we've got... I live here at Bidjemiah, but the, the place is split up into three. It's a joined station, but it's 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 split up into three places. One's Lions River. Uh, there's a young family there, a, a bloke, his wife, and, a, and they've got a, a, a three-year-old boy. And um, so they live in a house... by themselves without any staff, but we obviously all help each other a bit if we have to. Um, And they live at Lions River, and there's another couple that have got little baby twin girls, actually, fairly reasonably identical twin girls over at Weedarra. And uh, they're a a couple that have been with us for uh, probably seven or eight years now, or a little bit longer. And they live at Weedarra, and we all pretty well look after about half a million acres each. So they've, like, you know, that's... They're on a salary. Um, they, generally speaking, have their weekends off. Um, they would spend probably, you know, two, a couple of days of their week checking waters. Uh, they help out with mustering, generally speaking, on their own places. Um, but they will come to, like, just for example, we're mustering. We just just in a couple of paddocks around the house here last week and Mark from Weed Arrow came across just a hand a yard up. There's no mustering staff here. So, uh, And... Uh, the guy up at Lines River is a qualified diesel mechanic, so he sort of feels it does a fair bit of the, you know, mechanical work around here as well. But, uh, you know, it's been a day or two, you know, a week or a fortnight or something here at Bidjemaya fixing something that's broken or whatever. Uh, we've got full-time staff at Bidjemaya. Um, so there's myself and my wife, um, who obviously, you know, day-to-day runnings of the station here at Bidjemaya and else, you know, in the other parts as well. And generally speaking, um, you have a, a couple here that work full time at Bijamaya. And we've got a new guy starting, uh, in the new year. And he's coming across from the eastern states. And I've got three kids that all go to school there. So we, um, generally speaking, we have a, te- uh, a teacher here for them or a governess. Um, our uh, gubby's leaving us this year to go back to South Australia, but. The couple that are starting in the new year, uh, the, um, the uh, guy called Nick, he's going to be a station hand, and his partner Carissa is going to be the teacher for the kids. So, um, and staff's obviously just a huge part of your of your business, um, just just like you, uh, just incredibly important part of your business. Um, uh, you can't do it on your own, and you can't have. Um, it's a it's it's a difficult thing to to run and manage a cattle station. It's really – it is a difficult thing. It, they've, everybody's got a hard job. Um, you know, those guys at Weed and Lines River, they got to, you know, be independent, work on their own. they got to have mechanical skills. They've got to have common sense. They've got to love cattle. They've got to really want to look after them. They've got to – you know, it's it's a bloody big job. And you I don't see them from one week to the next, so you're really – Got to trust that they're doing a good job, and I know that they are. Um, and of course, then there's all your seasonal stuff as well. You, um, you know, the mustering camp and gang, you know, for, for three or four months of the year here. There might be, you know, a dozen extra people here or, or two, you know, somewhere between eight and a dozen. Um, plus all your, you know, your contractors and people that, you know, might be. Working, doing any of the, you know, myriad of different things, plumbers and tradies and whatever else is going on. They're pretty busy places, cattle, you know, cattle stations really. Everybody thinks of them as these sleepy little places, but they're always pretty busy. And, um, yeah, obviously trying to make sure everybody's got a bed and a feed and, you know, it's a, yeah, there's a, there can be a cook floating around at any given time as well. So it's, yeah, staff is a huge, you know, the cattle, you know, uh, kind of, yeah. The cattle sort of side of things is always you sort of know what they want, but the human, the you know, the human element to cattle stations can be pretty challenging at times. I think it's probably fair to say that handling staff is, you know, even though you know the idea is is that you really en- enjoy having staff and that sort of thing, but it, it's buddy it can be really hard work, sort of managing everybody's expectations and you know wages and. You know, uh, making sure everybody's happy and safe. Um, and we have struggled with that at times. And to be a professional uh, business that um, make sure that we make sure that everybody's getting out of Bijamile what they want. But you know, luckily, my wife probably has taken a bit of a leading hand with that and takes has has bought us has bought. Uh, Bought me along and has dragged the whole station forward, you know, from from you know almost kindergarten right through to year ten in a, but you know, a, a pretty quick time. And uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we're able to handle our relations, relationships, and and, and stuff a lot better than what we used to. And yeah, luckily we don't have anybody get hurt really on Bijamai. You know, it's a pretty safe place to work, which is always a really good thing. And uh, everybody's. I reckon most yeah we're pretty comfortable and everybody's happy and gets enough time off and they have got a good job that they enjoy and they're you know pretty well you know remunerated for and yeah that's it's it's an ongoing struggle and trying to find people to live and work in the bush and that sort of thing it's you know it can be pretty challenging but yeah you've you've got to work really hard to make sure that that works well it's a big 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 part of our you know it's probably the biggest part of our life is keeping
1: that going. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the quarters that you've got for your staff here?
2: Um, well, yeah, well, we've got well they're called shearers' quarters, left over from the shearing days. Um, so, one of the most important things on on these stations is making sure everybody's got a you know a, a comfortable way of living. So the homesteads at Wheatar and Lions River are nice places to live. You've got to constantly keep you know up you know keep sort of keep chipping away at them and you know. Making sure that they're nice places for for full time staff to live. The quarters are sort of more of a seasonal sort of stuff, um sort of a deal. But you know, you've got to renovate them and make sure that that's their air conditioning, just put a new kitchen in, and that you know you've got to keep chipping away at that as well. And
1: they're permanent buildings as well, aren't they? It's they not, they're not dongers. No,
2: no, no. And you have
1: you've just put a new kitchen in, so yeah. they can not have to come up and use the cooks' kitchen. On days off or time yeah, off, they've got their own kitchen. That's
2: right, yeah. So you've got to have that separate. And we've got a cottage here as well, which is a really nice house. that's where this new couple is going to shift into. And that's, you know, it's a really nice permanent house with gardens and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, you've got to just have that bit of privacy. Um, people have got to have their own space. And it's got to be comfortable and cool and, you know, lawned. And they've just got to – everybody's got to have their own space. We've just struggled, I think. You know, once upon a time, um, you know, you just you can't be on top of each other. I've got three little kids. You've got to have that separation. You, you can't have people living on top of each other, spending too much meals together. There's, there's a place for that and a time for that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you just have to make sure that everybody's got their own space. You know, communal kitchens and bathrooms and things like that work for a while, but eventually it just drives everybody mad, doesn't it? We're all, we're all built the same. And um, so that's a pretty big deal in itself. Like you know, there's I don't know how many you know there's probably five or six kitchens on this station just trying to trying to get everybody you know some space. And uh, that's um, that's a pretty big part of living on a, a of of managing relationships and making sure everybody's happy on stations as well.
1: The finishing questions: What is the biggest challenge you face in your business?
2: Climate. You know, uh, man. You know, there's not much you can do about that. Uh, The climate is the biggest challenge we have on this station, and making sure that uh, you know we're we're prepared to to, you know giving our cattle a a good life here. Um, And I would say, I would say, um, staff. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon um, making sure that that uh, our cattle. Uh, are getting well looked after and and our people are getting well looked after is, is, is a big uh, – that is – you can sort of half-pick what the cattle are going to do around here, but you never really know what the people are going to do.
1: If you could be boss for a day and bring something into the industry um, or kick something out, what would you do?
2: Um, if I could click my fingers and um, change anything tomorrow, I reckon um, – Oh, there'd be two things, I suppose. One would be, I'd just love to see, um, you know, the, I alluded to it before, but, uh, uh pastoralists having access to a really efficient, um, really professional way of spaying older cattle and even younger cattle. I think it would just be a complete game changer for, for, for all, all farmers really, um, but specifically pastoral, areas of Western Australia it's, that would be, that'd be the big one and, and plus a bit of a lift in genetics too um, you know that's, it's an individual thing for, for each farmer in Western Australia about the types of cattle that they want to run and, and, um, but you know I reckon, I reckon we could pick the game up a bit uh, just making sure that everybody's really trying hard to have the best type of cattle for the rangeland and the place that they live in and not not being limited by genetics in your cattle, I reckon it'd be a, it would be would be another one that you. If there was a message to come out of this, uh, it'd be would be that I reckon.
1: Final question: In your business um, or or life, what is a non negotiable for you?
2: Um, the blending of your business and your personal life is. We love living on cattle stations because there is that kind of that you know we just live for these stations really. But yeah, just the, the non-negotiables, are just making sure your family, your your kids, and your family life is that's that's we've got better at making sure that we've got this really good family life um, and that it's not being interrupted much. It's the, the station enhances it, not takes away from it, um, and that's. That's a non-negotiable. Our kids uh, go to, you know, they get taught. You know, they go to a really good school, and just making sure that the station's not not inhibiting your, your family life and your kids in any way, That's a, that's a non-negotiable. We don't really try and um, we don't bend. That's the that's up the top of the tree. We don't really bend or, or give in on on anything to do with the kids and 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 you know, our, our happiness at the station. Because if we're not happy here, if, we, if we're not happy and we, we don't have a good family life, then the rest of it eventually... You might be able to keep it together for five years or ten years or something, but eventually the, the wheels fall off cattle stations if you're not happy and everybody's healthy and doing well. So it's, a, it's one that we've always been pretty good at, but we're getting better at managing that as well. So...
0: The